0: Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. If you've been following along at towards the end of last year, I said I would be switching to kind of a different format and and doing shorter episodes. Uh, evidently, I am a big fat liar because I've I've uh, suddenly got very long winded in my episodes. Uh, anyway, today is part two of the same recording I began last week, and so I had an outline. I sat down at my computer, hit record. And about like an hour and a half later, I hit stop. So I broke it up into two episodes, and I'm covering the five points of Calvinism. These are commonly referred using uh, the—they're commonly named after the acrostic or acronym TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. And so last week I covered the T, U, and L, and that episode is kind of a must listen to before moving into this one. Again, this is part two of the same recording. And so uh, I'm just doing a little intro here, and then we'll get into that in just a little bit. So just a very brief refresher. T uh, T stands for total depravity or total inability. And basically, because of the fall, that is the sin of Adam and Eve, our whole humanity is fallen or corrupt. Sin Sin affects every part of our lives. It affects our will, our heart, our mind, and our body. Now, it's not that people, total depravity, total inability is not meaning that people are as bad as they possibly could be, but it means that in every part of our lives, we are affected by sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So sin has this hold on us. It affects the way we think and see the world. It, it blinds us in a way. Now, what's so important to remember is that because of sin, we do not want God. In fact, we hate God. We we love our sin. And so when we sin, we are rebelling against God. And and this is a, a big Key point in Calvinism, and a lot of times people just don't. Uh, we we tend to rationalize our own sin, and we never think of ourselves as maybe being as sinful or as rebellious against God as what we actually are. But that this is a huge point in Calvinism. So um, now the the another thing is that total depravity or total inability. It's not exactly. It's not saying that we're robots and God is forcing us to sin. No, we are free to choose. We freely choose to sin, but because of our love of sin, we will never choose God, and so essentially we are unable because we we all we we choose the thing we love, and so we we are always choosing our sin. In Romans eight seven through eight, it says, "For the mind that is set on the flesh." And here, flesh is talking about our, our sinful nature. Uh, so for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I know I covered this last time, but if you're going to understand what Calvinists are trying to say, you've got to get this idea of total inability or total depravity in your head. So you gotta understand what they are talking about by that. Uh, Lorraine Bettner, he's, he asked a few questions that that help to clarify what they mean. Uh, he says this, How can a man repent of his sin when he loves it? And how can he come to God when he hates God? In Calvinism, salvation is 100% the work of God to save sinners, because they will never turn to God on their own. So that's, that's the mindset of the Calvinists. If, so if you're going to understand what they are trying to say, then you've got to understand that. So that's the T. The U is for unconditional election. And and basically God elects those who will be saved according to his sovereign will and his good purpose. It's all about God's free choice here. So the reason we are saved has nothing to do with our good works or anything God foresees about us in the future. It is it is his free choice. In Romans 9:16 it says so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So, God would be perfectly right to send all of us to hell. We are all rebels against God and we have sinned against Him. So, if God is required to show us mercy, then that is not mercy at all. By definition, mercy and grace must be given freely. And so, God is free to dispense His mercy and grace on anyone He chooses. Now, w- when we say unconditional election, this is not this is not just some arbitrary pick by God. Just because God's choice has nothing to do with with any good that we do, it does not mean that God does not have a reason for doing that. We just don't know the reason. But but Calvinists are not saying that God's just walking through a field full of daisies and he's just bending down and picking up some of them just randomly. No, God has a reason for doing everything that he does. So that's the u unconditional election, and then the L limited atonement uh, this is this is uh, often misunderstood and and again, I mentioned last episode that some people call themselves four-point Calvinist, and they reject this one. so this is maybe the most controversial of the the five points of Calvinism, but so it's called limited atonement, that's the L in tulip, um, sometimes called particular redemption or definite atonement and And here's the main question that Calvinists ask. For whom did Jesus Christ die? If Jesus paid for everybody's sins on the cross, then why is God punishing some people in hell for the sins? Because Jesus paid for all of them, uh, is, is, um, is what Calvinists are arguing here. If Jesus paid for everybody's sin, then why are people going to hell? And so for the Calvinist, Jesus' work on the cross was part of the perfect work of the Trinity to save the elect. And so the father chooses according to his will and his good purpose. The son dies for the elect, redeeming them from sin. So he pays the punishment for their sin. And then the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the elect, giving them a new heart, which acknowledges sin and turns to Jesus Christ in faith for their forgiveness. Again, salvation is 100% the work of the Lord, and he never fails. Basically, if God sets out to save you, you will be saved. And so for a Calvinist, Jesus' death actually accomplished something. His death did not simply make people savable, but it actually saved them. In John 10:27 27-30, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and and there, when he says I and the Father are one, that that means they're one in purpose. Their 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 goals are the same, and that is to save the sheep. So, if last week's episode was a little too much information because it was a lot of Bible verses and just a lot, uh, then hopefully this brief summary of the T U and L uh, help help you kind of step back into the mind of a Calvinist to understand what a Calvinist is trying to say. Also, remember, I'm sort of role-playing for these episodes, so I'm speaking as though I'm a Calvinist a lot of times and explaining what they believe. Next week, I will be sort of role-playing as an Arminian and explaining their side of the argument, and so uh, just understand that, that that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, it, also, it's so important to understand what the other side believes, if it, and this goes for any sort of discussion or argument or whatever— so many times we argue and, and we don 't actually take time to listen to what the other side is trying to say, and I am certainly not saying i 'm perfect at this. I just want to encourage everyone out there that anytime you have an argument, make sure that you fully understand or, or you've 've put in as you know all the effort to try to understand where the other side is coming from, and so that 's what I hope this uh, these you know few weeks will will help uh Christians get at because. There's a lot of Christians that are that kind of pick a side and then they just sort of demonize the other side. And so I I, I want to bring some unity here. Help, let's let's just kind of help us all get on the same page. And then from there we we go to the Bible and examine what the Bible says. and And our decisions should be based on what the Bible says. So if you have any questions about anything that's mentioned in these episodes, please, please, please send me those questions. I, I, do, I actually do not get nearly as many questions as you may think I get. And so if you have a question, send it in. I would love to have like a Q&A episode towards the end of this little series. You can email me at bearchristianity at gmail.com. Also, you can message me on Instagram at TheRealBearMartin. And also, if you haven't already... I would ask you to leave a five-star review on the app that you're listening to. Some apps allow you to leave a review and a little comment. Others do not. But but if possible, that really helps this this, um, podcast spread and helps other people find it when they're searching for podcasts in the Christian genre. Now, this episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by That's My Spot. Have you ever creeped through a crowded parking lot for hours searching for an open spot only to have a car that just arrived pull in right in front of you? Not anymore. With the That's My Spot phone app, simply mark your status as searching and it will reserve your spot in order of the cars that arrive on the lot. If someone whips into a spot in front of you, simply put your car in park get out of the car and slam your door closed. Keep your hand on your phone inside your pocket and walk aggressively towards the car, yelling, that's my spot. Make sure you keep your hand and phone hidden in your pocket. Continue to yell until they move out of your reserved spot. Bear Christianity listeners receive an official that's my spot dark hoodie when they use the coupon code, make my day. That's my spot. Can't we all just get along? Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. All right, here is part two of last week's recording. The next in our TULIP acronym is the I for irresistible grace. Um, Sometimes this is called the effectual calling. In chapter 10 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it says this, In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those who he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by His almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet, He does all this in such a way that they come completely free since they are made willing by His grace. So next week, as I present the case for Arminianism, I will talk about prevenient grace. Uh, This is a grace given by God which allows people who are dead in sin to now respond to God. Prevenient grace enables a person to come to God, but in Arminianism, they can deny this grace in Calvinism, God's grace is is considered irresistible. It is effectual. It actually accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do. And so it is a part of the salvation process which will surely take place. So just like in limited atonement, Jesus is actually paying the sin debt for the elect, the idea of irresistible grace puts the emphasis on the saving power of God. So some scriptural support in Ezekiel 36, 26-28 says this, "...and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you." I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In Eze- a few verses down in Ezekiel 36, it says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. In Hebrews eight ten, it says this: For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, this this verse in Hebrews is actually a quote from Jeremiah, and again, it's talking about this new covenant that God's going to make. The old covenant being the Ten Commandments, the the law. God says, Obey my laws, and and you will live. Do not obey my laws, and you will die. And so that that's the old covenant. In the and and Israel failed that covenant time and time again, constantly. And so, in the New Testament, there there is Jesus brings the new covenant, and so this was a pro, this new covenant was a promise made in the Old Testament of of what's going to come and, and what Jesus will bring. And so, this new covenant in Hebrews eighteen it says, "For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days," declares the Lord, "I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts." and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So uh, let me let me give you an illustration. So Charles Spurgeon is a famous Calvinist preacher, and he has this this illustration that is often used when we think about this idea of irresistible grace. And so Spurgeon compares pigs loving slop to sinful mankind. He says, "You know, mankind as sinners, we have a pig's heart." But God gives us a new heart, one that desires the things of God and views sin now as disgusting. And so this is what's happening with irresistible grace. Calvinists believe that God is doing a miracle. He is creating in us a new heart, a, a new set of desires. And so only then can we desire the things of God. And God works in such a way to change our heart that our new heart will desire God. And so it's like changing a a pig to a man. If you change a pig to a man, the man is going to want filet mignon, not pig slop. And so that's, that's what's happening with this irresistible grace. And so man is freely choosing to go to God when God gives them this grace. But it is a certain work of God, because when God creates a new heart in man, he will choose God. So if someone was shown their true nature and the evil wickedness of sin, if God convicted them of sin in their own lives, and they knew that Jesus could be their, their Savior, they, they realized that Jesus was the only way that they would be saved, if they truly understood that, who, who would reject that? And so that is the way Calvinists view the saving grace of God. Grace, faith, repentance, these are all seen as gifts from God. And so grace and faith are gifts in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, the question is, what does this refer to? In the Greek language, grace and faith are both feminine, but this is neuter. So if you're... if if you um, are going to, if this was going to refer to something specific, the genders should match. But since it's neuter in the Greek language, this is used to refer back to an entire phrase. So the whole process of salvation, by grace through faith, this whole phrase is the gift of God. So I'll read that verse again For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, the grace that saves you through faith, all of that, the whole process, is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast now this this uh the greek language stuff that i just went into this is not my stuff because i am cert- i have studied it but i'm not an expert in the greek language this interpretation is from bill mounts who literally wrote the book that i used to study new testament greek so he is a greek expert so grace and faith are a gift repentance is also seen as a gift acts 11 uh, Verse eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, "Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life." Second Timothy two twenty-four through twenty-six. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the Snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will, and so here we have the idea of uh, god is is granting the gift of repentance. God is working in the heart of a sinner and and because God changes their heart, they are a new creation, He regenerates them, they are born again, now they can actually see sin for what it truly is, and they start to make correct choices. They start to choose the things of God. They come to God. And so it is it, because God changes their heart, they freely come to God. And it's irresistible because it's like, you know, a, a man is never going to choose pig slop over a filet mignon. He it's, He's just not going to make that choice. The last one in TULIP is the P, perseverance of the saints. The London Baptist Confession says this, those got and this is in chapter 17 of that— Those God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit and given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved, because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, He still brings about and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It is based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. The certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on all these things. And so, again, the the emphasis here is placed on God's work in saving his elect. So perseverance of the saints is a logical conclusion, basically, to the rest of the five points of Calvinism. If it's all God's work, then he will not fail. That That's the common theme you're probably hearing over and over again. If God chooses to do something, he does not fail in doing that. And so when when God chooses someone to be saved, he will hold them and they will persevere. And so God is changing their heart. And, and his grace is working over time to to make them more like Christ. Now, sometimes Christians will slip and and fall into sin, but if they're truly saved, they will repent of that sin and turn back to Christ. And so God is constantly working in us to make him more like Christ. And the whole concept of the perseverance of the saints is is based on the perfect work of God, the you know, God, all the things that God is doing. Some scriptural support for perseverance of the saints. Philippians 1 6, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Psalm 138 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. John six thirty seven through 39, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. You've heard this verse before. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Hebrews ten fourteen. for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 12, 1 through two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is in Hebrews eleven. It's called the Hall of Faith. It's talking about all these people who have had faith in God. And so, right after that, and and also it mentions that they are being persecuted for their faith. And so, in in the next chapter to start out, Hebrews twelve verse one, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the Christian, you know, again, in the Calvinist mindset, if God chooses to save you, there is nothing that will will separate you from the love of God. And so again, the the basis for the perseverance of the saints is, is all on this. It's all on the free choice of God and the power of God. So there you have it there's tulip that's that's the basics so a few other things here Calvinists seek to honor the Lord by acknowledging that he is wholly responsible for salvation the redemptive work of God is a gracious act where he shows mercy to whomever he pleases now Calvinists reject the notion that we are all robots created by God for specific tasks and without any responsibility A few verses just to demonstrate this in genesis 50 20 Joseph is talking to his brothers and so Joseph was hated by his brothers he was sold in they sold him into slavery they were going to kill him and then they decided to sell him into slavery and so o- over the over a a long period Joseph was sold into slavery and then rises to power, and he's second in command in Egypt. And there's a famine, and so his brothers come to Egypt for food, and and who are they standing before except their brother, Joseph? And so Joseph says this, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so Joseph, by in rising to power in Egypt, he had a plan to save food, which helped not only Egypt, but a lot of the known world survive this famine. And so God used Joseph to save a lot of people, but the brothers meant evil against Joseph. And so there, there's the verse right there, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, the the brothers were freely choosing to do an evil thing. Yet God meant it. He, he was choosing to to use it for good. And so the brothers meant evil, and God meant it for good. It's the same Hebrew word there, meant. And so it's not as if the brothers decide to do something, and then God's like scrambling around in heaven trying to figure out how to, how to make something positive happen out of this situation. No, it was the eternal decree of God that this would happen. God had a purpose for it and he meant it for good, yet the brothers are not excused for their evil decision to sell their brother into slavery. Another verse along this same concept, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then another one right on this same, same line of thought, Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so here we have people that are choosing to crucify and kill Jesus wrongfully. They are, they are committing evil in their hearts, and, and the Bible is acknowledging that. Yet, it, the Bible also says that this was according to the predestined plan of God. It says, it delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so God had decreed that Jesus would be crucified, and he decreed it from the foundation of the world. It was an eternal decree. Yet, it, it took place by the free choice of sinful men and women who, who crucified Jesus. So God's election is never an excuse for unbelief. If if you are worried that you may not be part of the elect, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So it it is never an excuse. People people can never give an excuse. Well, I'm I'm just not part of the elect and uh, and I don't sort of feel uh, any sort of working of the Holy Spirit in my life and so therefore, uh, you know, I just I'm not going to believe cuz I'm not part of the elect. That that is the Bible never gives mankind that excuse. You will stand before God one day and be judged for rejecting him. And so if if you are hearing this, Choose God, you know um, turn to God, turn to him, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, anyone who says, "I am a sinner and I need a savior, save me, please god they They can trust that God is that that is God working in your heart, and you are you you can you can be saved. so Calvinists reject this idea that that you can you can use this idea of election as a an excuse for not believing in God. Also, Calvinists reject the idea that God is actively creating evil in the hearts of people. God is actively working in the heart of his elect and creates a new heart in them which seeks to please God and exercises faith. But for the non-elect, God is not forcing them to do evil. They are sinning because they freely want to sin. They are freely choosing to sin. The London Baptist Confession says, From all eternity God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside Himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that He is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. And so, again, basically, God has an eternal decree. Everything that occurs is by his decree. Yet he is not, he is not creating evil. He is not forcing people to sin. And then there's this idea of of second causes. A second cause includes any cause that is secondary to God's decree. So this would be like the laws of nature um so you know if I if I drop a pencil, why does it hit the floor? Well, it's because God decreed that I would drop a pencil and it would hit the floor, but also it's because God has designed our world with gravity. And so it so secondary causes include laws of nature. It also includes the free choices of men and women. And it and it such as the verse I mentioned earlier about um you know. Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders choosing to crucify Jesus. And then it also includes contingencies, and contingencies are like if-then type of situations. And so in Mark 16, 15 through 16, says this, and he said to them, this is Jesus, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so, again, this is... You can, you can say this verse to anybody. You can, you can t- Calvinists believe that they can proclaim to anybody, you know, believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Calvinists are missionaries. Calvinists uh, preach the gospel. Calvinists call people to turn to God. And so uh, they, they, they are not denying verses like I just read where Jesus says, whoever believes will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So God is not the author of evil and neither does God violate our will. Everything which happens in history occurs because of God's decree and everything that happens in history occurs because of the countless choices of men and women. God's decree is the primary cause and the choices of men and women are secondary causes. Calvinists often distinguish between God's secret will and God's revealed will. This is sometimes called his decretive will or his perceptive will. So God's secret will includes his eternal decree, and these details have not been made known to, to us. It is part of the divine knowledge of God. So God has a secret will, and, and he has chosen not to, to share that with us. That's things that will happen in the future, all of that stuff. The revealed will or his preceptive will are the things which God calls us to do. It is God's call of duty to rational creatures. Thus, God can command, thou shalt not kill, and he can hold men accountable for the wrong they do. However, nothing occurs outside of God's secret will. So God can ordain before the foundation of the world that He, he God can say, do not murder. And at the same time, God can ordain from the foundation of the world this verse Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, again, we have the free choices of men to crucify Jesus and also God's definite eternal plan. So, in wrapping things up, what I've learned from listening to both sides of the Calvinism Arminianism debate is that a lot of the arguments made are 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 going to by each side are going to be calling out seemingly inconsistencies with both positions. So the Armenians call out Calvinists to be consistent. They'll say if God decrees whatsoever comes to pass and this is not just because he knows what will happen in the future but rather because he has ordained it to be so, then that makes God the author of evil. So Arminianists will Armenians will accuse Calvinist of making God the author of evil. Um, They'll say he decreed Adam to sin, so he decreed all the evil acts of the world. So if the Calvinist is being consistent, says the Arminian, then we are all robots. God chose some for salvation and some for damnation, and it doesn't make any difference what we do, because God chose it before we were created." As I shared in my last episode, this is the basic way I thought about Calvinism when I first heard about it. Uh, you know, So I think these are legitimate questions that the Arminians are posing. Um, and at some point, Calvinists must admit that they don't know how God can decree everything that happens yet not be the author of sin. It, it, there's there's different you know, phys, philosophical arguments and stuff like that, uh, but it's tough for our human brains to make sense of all that, that God is completely sovereign, yet also we are held accountable for the choices we make. But Calvinists are attempting to be consistent, as consistent as possible, with what is taught in the Bible. It's clear in the Bible that God is good. He is love. Uh, he is just. All his judgments are are perfect judgments. It's also clear that men and women are held responsible for their decisions to disobey God, and they are encouraged to make a free decision to trust and obey God. Again, I keep going back to the the John MacArthur quote in the last episode. You know, we we stick to what the Bible says. And so uh, is God sovereign? Is, Is he in complete control? Yes. Are men responsible for the choices they make? Yes. So next week, I hope to explain Arminianism in in what way do you think Calvinists accuse arminians of being inconsistent so I, i've showed you some of the some of the um accusations that arminians make on Calvinists, and so just think about that in what way would a calvinist uh say that Ar- an arminian is being inconsistent and so i'll I'll talk about some of those things next time for a closing verse romans 11